As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Restore Your Mojo. A Culture Project Restore Night Talk by Dr. Matthew Tan. It's such a great pleasure to be with you all tonight. And um, just a big thank you to, um, to Dory and the Culture Project for inviting me to speak. Um, when I saw the, um, there's a bit of a backstory to this. When I saw the Facebook ad for this event, um, it kind of made me out to be some kind of Catholic Jordan Peterson. Um, <laughs> full disclosure, this is not going to be a Catholic Jordan Peterson event. Um, what I am going to be telling you about, and some of you might actually be starting to feel this already. Um, a good number in the room are probably going to be studying. How many of you are doing studies? About week four, week five into study, give or take. Right? But you're, you're fair ways into it, right? Um, good number in the room probably doing some study. And by this time, you'll probably be maybe around the first month of university, you came in bright-eyed, you came in bushy-tailed, full of that youthful exuberance that comes with studying for 36 hours a week, one can always live in hope. Um, but by about the fourth week, and, and I know this, by about the fourth week, the edge that you have just wears off, right? The enthusiasm is no longer there. Um, every class sounds like it's the same thing repeated over and over again. <laughs> Right? And you get bored. And some of you start procrastinating. Right? Your desk might start accumulating a cobweb or two. And some of you may even start to doubt your choices of study. Some of you may even start to doubt your life choices in general. Your own existence. In short, you start to lose your mojo. Now the reason why this is not a Jordan Peterson talk is because it's more about the loss of mojo that I'm going to be focusing on tonight. Um, what we're talking about here is about that loss of enthusiasm, right? Or is there more, right? Is it, is it enthusiasm that we're really losing or is there something more that is going under the surface of that study period muffin that you just made, right? I'm just going to get into so much trouble with all the bakers in here. Um, now, what I'm going to put you to, to you tonight is that what you may be going through by the time, if you are in this funk, what you may be going through in this funk may actually be something, um, something much more than just mere loss of mojo, mere loss of enthusiasm. What I actually am going to put to you tonight is that what you may be experiencing is the encounter with a deadly sin, namely the deadly sin of sloth. Now, when you first hear the word sloth, some of you may think the furry animal. Incidentally, I prefer the three-toed sloth over the two-toed. Um, and immediately, we have this sort of quick association of sloth with laziness. And you just go, oh, no, 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 that's not me. I'm not nothing like that. I have had the most productive day. All of my greetings always go with, oh, look how busy I was over the weekend. <laughs> have you had that? Have you had that encounter? What was your weekend like? Oh, yeah, good, busy, right? As if it was some kind of virtue. Right? Um, and, you, and you say, that's not me. 
So I can't be um, suffering from the deadly sin of sloth. Now, in a way, that's understandable because of that image that we have made that we have made in our uh, in our heads, right? That image of sloth that most of us have grown up with, and most of us do not like to think that we are capable of deadly sins. How many of you like to say, I, I really, really like having, uh, having a deadly sin in my life, right? I really like having pride, right? None of us like to have, to be associated with a deadly sin, right? So what I'm gonna do tonight, apart from defend the honor of the three-toed sloth, what I'm gonna be doing tonight is um, go into, take a deep dive into this sin and basically, uh, uh, into the sin of sloth and basically say that there is much more, so much more to the deadly sin of sloth than mere laziness. What it has to do, what, what the deadly sin of sloth has to do with is something that is subtler and because it is subtler, it is much more unexpected and because it's much more unexpected, it is also far deadlier. And now before I go further, I would like to lay out a scenario. Let's just see whether you can find yourself in it. Now imagine a person starting out his morning and say he had to uh, have this big to-do list which includes, I don't know, writing a speech for the culture project about losing your mojo. Um, and as the time comes for you to begin, usually after the fifth cup of coffee, um, this person is about to turn to your computer and then he thinks, oh, I'm tired. I didn't really sleep very well last night. Maybe I'll have another cup of coffee, and then it turns into another cup of coffee, and another cup of coffee. And then before you know it, the sun has set, and you're jacked up with caffeine. You're a mental Sonic the Hedgehog. And your body just cannot keep up, and the to-do list remains unchecked. Now you may adapt this scenario to a version that is much more familiar in your own experience. Words like laziness and words like dawdling might come to mind when I mention something like that. And here you might think, deadly sin of sloth. Which is the understandable um, and you know, very common understanding of the deadly sin that most of us grew up with. Now, let me put another scenario um, to you. Now, tell me if you can find yourself in this scenario. Imagine a person starting her morning I'm for the gender equality here. Imagine a person starting her morning. This was to be a big day. This is the big day where she writes a speech um, for the culture project on the deadly sin of sloth. And as the time comes for the day to officially begin, usually after her first cup of coffee, she looks at her to-do list, which has only one item in huge capital letters, Mojo, written all over it. She looks at the to-do list, she looks at the empty space down below the to-do list, and then she thinks, I need to pick up the dry cleaning. Writes that down below the list. Then she goes, maybe I can catch up with Lily, whom I haven't spoken to in months. That goes down the list. Next she says, oh, maybe I could do, get that newsletter done that I have been delaying for the last three weeks. That goes down the list. Very soon, the entire sheet is filled with a variety of tasks that she needs to get done, which she dutifully does. Right? She does all of them. And when the day is ended, she slumps on the couch, exhausted, but pleased at the busy and productive day that she has had. She picks up her to-do list and she looks smugly at that long line of check boxes against a whole slew of tasks and engagements. Only one item remains unchecked. 
mojo. She looks at that last unchecked item and goes, maybe tomorrow. Now, you may look at that scenario and words like idleness do not necessarily come to mind. You might think busy, maybe even productive, but also distracted, frenetic. You might not look at a day like that and call it slothful. But I put it to you tonight that this second scenario that I just laid out actually better explains the deadly sin of sloth than the first. The first, right, mere laziness, is just a demonstration of one outward symptom of the deadly sin. The second scenario, on the other hand, gives us a much more disturbing glimpse into the heart of the deadly sin. Does that make sense to everyone? All right? I say the heart um, purposefully because the heart is an important backdrop for our consideration of sloth. I'm going to be uh, drawing upon St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas just for a bit. Now, in their own way, Augustine and Aquinas um, have each said that everything that we do, every movement that we make with our bodies, with, um, in, with our mind, first up is a movement of something interior. First, it is a movement of the heart, a movement of desire. And now my talk is going to make two broad points tonight. Um, the first is I'm going to be taking my lead here um, from a, a, a great little book by a, an American philosopher named R.J. Snell. The title of that book is called Acedia, A-C-E-D-I-A, make, make a note of that word, Acedia and its discontents. Make a note of that book. That book will change your life. I recommend it highly. Now, what does Snell say? In that book, Snell says that the heart of sloth is not a desire to sleep more. Here is the clincher. The heart of sloth is actually the desire to become autonomous, to be free. Now you may think to yourself, what? But hold on to that, right? The heart of sloth is the desire to become autonomous. The second point that I'm going to be saying, uh, making is that the desire for autonomy, the desire to be free, is not merely a human desire. Now here, I'm going to be drawing upon a 4th century Egyptian monk. Right? Got to bring a 4th century Egyptian monk into every pub talk. Let me just... This is, make, this, make this my call to action tonight. Bring more 4th century Egyptians. Um, this, this person's name, name is Evagrius. Evagrius of Pontus. Evagrius says that um, the, the, the work of sloth is more than just a human work. He says that the work of sloth, the sin of sloth, is actually a work of demons. It's a demonic work. right? It is a work of fantasy that removes me from my reality while giving an illusion of another reality. Hold on to that for a second, right? So, two things. Sloth is about freedom, and sloth is demonic. Okay, hold on to those two things. Now, the two points will weave into one another as we, uh, as we go on. But we can get a sense of that overlap if we make use of the, the other name that I just mentioned for the deadly sin of sloth, which is called the vice of acedia. What does acedia mean? Acedia linguistically basically means the lack of care. Right? One of the earliest written sources of, an, of acedia comes from Evagrus. That's why I'm bringing him up tonight. 
Evagrius is, is an interesting figure because he is one of the key figures of what we may call, what, what we call desert spirituality. How many of you have heard of desert spirituality, the desert fathers, right? Um, Evagrius is one of these key figures. More significantly for Catholics, Evagrius is actually a bit of a spiritual grandfather to Western monasticism because Evagrius had a disciple and his disciple's name was John Cashin. You may not know that name, but you may, not, but you may know this other name. John Cashin also had a disciple. His name was St. Benedict. Right? St. Benedict is the godfather of Western monasticism. Now, the genealogy of monasticism finds its beginnings in Evagrius. Now, we need to turn to one of Evagrius's most important works. And that work is entitled The Practicos. I believe there are handouts floating around somewhere. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Um, now, the, as the name suggests, what you're seeing in those handouts is basically um, a passage from the practicos. Now, as the name suggests, the, the word practicos is a bit of a practical handbook on Egyptian asceticism. It's a kind of precursor, if you will, to the rule of St. Benedict. What's relevant here are chapters 6 and chapters 12. Six is interesting, we don't have time to go into it, but six is interesting because it gives us an insight into how the deadly sins are understood in its earliest days. In the Practicos, um, Evagris uses, uses two interchangeable terms for the deadly sins. Um, the first uh, word that he uses, the first name that he uses for deadly sin is called um, tempting thoughts. Okay, sounds... Um, you know, so, sounds innocuous enough, tempting thoughts. But then, he was also, I said that there's an interchangeable term. What's the other interchangeable term? The interchangeable term is demon. Right? The deadly thoughts are demons. Now, the fact that the deadly thoughts are demons um, is very instructive here. Because when I talk about demons, we tend to think about something that is invasive, something foreign that comes in from the outside. Right? Um, there's something about tempting thoughts that we can rightly regard as, in a way, inhuman. Right? There is something inhuman of um, falling into these deadly sins or falling into these tempting thoughts. However, the fact that these demons are not just demons, they also come as tempting thoughts. And thought is something that comes from within the person. What, what, is that, what does this sort of say, right? What this sort of says is that there is actually a bit of a blur in the distinction between what goes on inside and what goes on outside. There is a blurring of that border between the monk on the one hand and the demon on the other. That's, that is something um, to make a note of. What this shows is that there's a very real vulnerability of the monk to the attack from demons. Now, we don't have time to explore Evagris' whole list of deadly thoughts, but what I do encourage is for you to have a look at them because um, the listing of the deadly thoughts and the listing of his deadly sins are actually very different from how we normally understand them. For instance, just to give you a bit of an idea, what um, Evagrius says is, is the deadliest um, tempting thought is not pride, it's actually sloth. Now take a note of that, right? The deadliest 
the, uh, the deadliest tempting thought for Evagrius is, um, is, the, is the vice of Acedia. Now, Evagrius has this whole chapter 12, which is listed in the, in, in the handout, um, to Acedia. Now, he is responsible for calling Acedia by its popular name. Right? We may have heard of that name before. That name is the Noonday Demon. How many of you have heard of that name before? Right? Some of you may have. Right? Now, where does this name, Noonday Demon, come, out, come, come from? It's a name that refers to um, verse 6 of Psalm 90-91. It, it might be a familiar psalm for you if you have sung on eagle's wings too often. And really, who can sing on eagle's wings too often? What does the song leave out, right? Um, the song leaves out the very thing that Evagrius focuses on. The scripture verse goes, right? Some of you may know the scripture verse. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor the scourge that lays waste at noon. The scourge that lays waste at noon. That is how Evagrius saw the demon of Acedia. Alright? Now, in describing how Acedia lays waste at noon, Evagrius writes this in chapter 12, and it's worth quoting in length. You guys have the, um, the handouts in front of you? Right? He says, The demon of Acedia, which is called the noonday demon, is the most burdensome of all demons. This is where he, he calls it the deadliest sin. It besets the monk at about the fourth hour, 10 a.m., encircling his soul until about the eighth hour. First, it makes the sun appear to slow down or stop so that the day seems to be 50 hours long. Then it forces the monk to keep looking out the window and rush from his cell to observe the sun in order to see how much longer it is till the ninth hour, 3 p.m. and to look about in every direction in case any of the brothers are there. Then it assails him with hatred of his place, his way of life, and the work of his hands, and that love has departed from the brethren and that there is no one to console him. If anyone has recently caused the monk grief, the demon adds this as well to amplify his hatred for these things. It makes him desire other places where he can easily find all that he needs and practice an easier, more convenient craft. After all, listen to this, after all, pleasing the Lord is not dependent on geography, the demon adds. God is to be worshipped everywhere. I cannot relate to this at all. It joins to this the remembrance of the monk's family and his previous way of life and suggests, and suggests to him that he still has a long time to live, raising him before his eyes a vision of how burdensome the ascetic life is. Now, when we first hear of these words, we may not find much that we would equate to laying waste. We may even find ourselves in the monk's position and not perceive anything like complete and utter destruction. But we must first understand that Evagoras is concerned with practice. Right? He is concerned with what, um, uh, what is actually going on with the practice of the monk's life. But what he also outlines are the outward symptoms of a demonic illness. 
Like demonic illnesses are like viral infections. The outward signs may not fully reflect the profundity of the illness occurring within. The illness within is horrifying. And we can unpack the horrors if we return to our first point, that the heart of sloth is the desire for autonomy and freedom. First, a quick refresher in Aquinas 101. You can tell I'm an academic. Um, now, Aquinas says, now this starts to feel very much like a Confucius same moment, but anyway, um, Aquinas says that every creature has two things. He has a cause and he has an end. The creature, every, everything that exists on this earth is created or caused by something beyond itself. Right? It lives a life that is not of my own making. Right? I mean, I live, I don't create my own life. Right? Consequently, the goods of this earth, everything and everyone around me, even the ones that are products of my own work, are also not, ultimately not of my own making. They are actually caused by something outside. It's a cause and created by the creator. So I have a cause as a creature. At the same time, I also have a destination. I have an end. I have something to aim towards as part of being a creature. And this end is called by many names. It's called the telos, highest good, cheeseburger. It's summed up by many names. But it's summed up by that oh-so-familiar philosophical term, flourishing or happiness. I strive towards my end because in that cheeseburger, in that end, lies my happiness. It sounds all well and good, but what does any of this have to do with sloth, you may ask yourself. According to Snell, the recognition that we are creatures striving towards our cheeseburgers, you can tell I'm not obsessed, the recognition that we are striving towards our end is also to recognize that my existence is always set in, some, in the context of some kind of order, ordained by someone else. And happiness is to be found, my happiness is to be found by my cooperation with this order rather than my working against it. Does that make sense? Right. If I am a creature created by God, I am striving towards a destination ordained by God. And my happiness lies in cooperating with God in the destination and arriving at the destination or working towards the destination that he has set. This then helps us to understand what the life of virtue is. Because we cannot speak about vice, we cannot speak about deadly sins, and then lose sight of virtue as the opposite. Virtues, they are patterns or habits that help us to live within and cooperate with this order. In other words, to live in the context of reality. This is what the virtues do. The virtues help us live reality. They help us face reality. Now, in this context, if, you, if living the life of virtue is living a life of reality, then what are the vices? Vices, in a way, are kind of like drugs. Right? They, they give, oh, I should have said there was are going to be drug references here. Um, the user of drugs always has a chance to, even if momentarily, 
um, experience an alternative reality. Only this alternative reality is actually not real. It's a fantasy. Now we find the deadly sins, similarly, we find the deadly sins attractive, not because we know them to be deadly sins, but because we perceive in them an alternative universe, an alternative reality that we find more attractive than the reality we currently live in. And our happiness lies in living in that alternative reality rather than the reality that we are facing here and now. Does that make sense? Now let's just take a step back. Do you remember when we were in primary school, when we were taught the deadly sins, which deadly sin nourishes the others? What is the chief deadly sin? It's pride. I raise pride because in a way, pride is the chief spiritual drug. It is the chief spiritual narcotic from which all the other vices are nourished. At the heart of the vice of pride, is the world that is summarized by a mantra that is often attributed to Lucifer. That mantra says, I will not serve. I will be subordinate to no one. I will be subordinate to no thing. More specifically, if we are trying to think like Thomists here, right? in the context of this idea of creaturehood that I just outlined earlier, pride says, I will not cooperate with this order. Instead, I will only live in a world that is of my own making and I will only strive towards an end that is of my choosing. In other words, I am striving to be autonomous. I am striving to be free of any stricture, any imposition, any order. It is this drive for autonomy that lies at the heart of the vice of acedia, the vice of sloth. The, the slothful have basically this rejection of the good of being a creature. The slothful hates creaturehood, and the slothful hates the order in which the creature lives. Now this then gives us an insight into why when talking about the deadly sins, Aquinas uses um, this term that says that when the, the slothful are afflicted with the deadly sin, they are afflicted with, by what in Latin is called the tristitia bonum. In English it means the sadness at the good. Why is the slothful sad at the good? He is sad not because he is lazy. He is sad because the good is not of his own making. The good always exists in the context of an order created by God. Snell says that acedia is not about passive lethargy. It's not about just tiredness or laziness. Even when it is done unconsciously, sloth is actually an active overthrow of order and a refusal to be subordinate to order. The slothful, says Snell, sees an alternative reality that is, um, sees an alternative reality where the whole universe is brought under my supervision. The slothful seeks to attribute no significance to the universe beyond what their imagination can ascribe to it. 
In other words, the slothful refuses to see the world as the Creator sees it. But when the slothful refuses to see creatures as the Creator sees them, something happens to those creatures. We might try to let our imaginations endow meaning to things in the name of freedom, right? in the name of pride. But as creatures ourselves, our imaginations are limited. Now, if I'm going to be using my limited imagination to actually endow meaning to the universe, what is going to happen? A way to think through this is to um, think of the contrast. Scripture tells us that the imagination of the Creator, unlike creatures, is infinite. And consequently, creatures then, when, especially when they are made in the image of God, creatures then are vast universes of meaning in and of themselves. Fun fact, in the Bible, in the book of Ecclesiasticus, the prophet Sirach has this great passage where he moves seamlessly between speaking about nature and the wisdom of God. In chapter 1, verse 1, the very beginning of the book, the prophet Sirach says this, All wisdom is from the Lord. Okay, that's obvious. All wisdom is from the Lord, but the sand and the sea and the raindrops, who can assess them? The height of the sky and the breadth of the earth and the abyss, who can probe them? Seamless, you know, seamless um, movement here between the wisdom of God and the depth of creatures. Why? Because God is the one who actually made those creatures. And his infinity is in some ways imprinted into, um, into the world, into the universe. But the slothful lacks this imagination. It lacks this depth of imagination. And so the slothful will then bestow upon upon the world a similar lack of imagination. There's a similar lack of depth to the world around him. And now when this happens, something happens to the world. The world gets its meaning sucked out of it. The world becomes devoid of meaning. And the world becomes thinned out. It is rendered into mere materials under my control. It's no longer a universe of meaning. It's just a mere material for me to manipulate. When, where this will go is indicated by a great Russian artist named Vasily Kadinsky. In 1910, Kadinsky wrote an essay entitled On the Spiritual in Art. And in that essay, Kadinsky remarked that the thinning out of the world by materialism, this is the quote, it turned life of the, the life of the universe into an evil, useless game. For the slothful, things become mere playthings. And for the slothful, things become just thinned out surfaces. And then scratching under the surface, what do you find? You find a whole void of nothing. So this bleaching out of the world gives us a new angle on the very first symptom of the attack in the outline. Right? The first symptom of the attack of the noonday demon in paragraph one. In paragraph one, there is the impression that the noonday has stood still. Remember that? The day has become thinned out. Nothing more than a single moment repeated over and over and over again. And here we begin to get the sense of how a lays waste. 
Acedia or sloth does not merely thin out the depths of creatures. Time itself, right, one of the essential building blocks of our existence, becomes similarly devoid of meaning. You become similarly thinned out. Now, there's this twofold fruit that comes with this bleaching of uh, meaning from the universe. The first aspect of this fruit is an attitude to the world that we might recognize easily. The name of this attitude is boredom. When the world becomes devoid of meaning, a person will find limited joy in what is currently before him, whether it is a thing, whether it is a person, whether it is a place. The person hit by the vice of sloth grows bored with things. He grows bored with the universe. And this boredom becomes the driver of a more serious symptom of the vice of sloth. What um, the, the German philosopher named Joseph Pieper calls the roaming unrest of the spirit. It is a restlessness. And with this restlessness comes another desire, a desire for mobility, a desire to move around in order for me to exercise my freedom. The ability to move everywhere and anywhere except the thing I am supposed to be moving to. Why do I move around? I move around in the hope that then I would find the situation that fits my idea of flourishing. Not happy with one thing? Go over to the next thing. Not happy with your home? Sell up and move to another town. Not happy with your marriage? Get a divorce and move to another wife. And so on and so, and so forth. Now we see this particularly in paragraph two of the practicals. The monk, bored with the task at hand, starts moving around in every direction, every direction that is, except the direction where he's supposed to be, in his cell. The reason why this is serious, because as we see in paragraphs 5 and 6, this restless desire for physical mobility grows into another kind of mobility. Another kind of mobility that manifests itself not in the body, but in the mind. There is this mobility in the mind which manifests itself as a constant turning of attention away from the reality that is before me to another speculative reality where I live another life in another place, in another time where life is ideal. Right? These ideal times, these ideal places, and these ideal people are fantasies. Let's take a look at where these fantasies are taking us. In paragraph five of the practicals, right? the monk thinks of more convenient places. Where is he going? He's going towards the future. If only life was more convenient, then I will move toward his mind towards the future. In paragraph six, he starts contemplating about his previous life. So where is his mind going now? Going back to the past, where, as we know, everything was perfect, right? Um, only the past is irretrievable and very often romanticized because Quite seriously, how often, how many of us actually remember the past correctly when we get nostalgic? Both of these places, the past and the future, are not real. The one place where his fantasies do not take him 
are the present. Why? Because the present is not an ideal place for the slothful. The present has already been bleached of significance. And the present places a limit on the slothful. It places an order, a lordship over the slothful that the slothful cannot, um, cannot ab abide by. It cannot tolerate it. Now, there's a fascinating side note I want to bring up here. Um, and, and this is the linking of mobility to prayer, to mobility to worship. This is highlighted in paragraph 5. It's summed up by that phrase, surely the demon says, God is to be worshipped everywhere. In this paragraph, Evagrius is making a link between fidelity to God and fidelity to the conditions that make up the present moment. There is an assertion here that is as subtle as it is insidious. In insisting on protecting my mobility, I am also making a presumption about my own fidelity to God. It doesn't matter where I am. I am as faithful to God in point A as I am to point B. I can be wherever I want, whenever I want, and still be as faithful as I want. Why is it insidious? Because it is the beginning of that overturning of the hierarchy of relations with the divine. The divine is now subordinated to my ideals and my notions of convenience. So, another thing, another place, another person, boredom solved. Right? Remember that this boredom is not directed at any one thing. When everything in existence becomes thinned out, I'm not actually being bored with one specific thing or person. I'm actually being bored with everything that lives. Existence itself becomes boring. It means that wherever, whatever, and whoever I move to will eventually be sucked dry. The slothful realizes that everything and everyone is just as boring as what came before. And so the slothful will come to hate what came before because of its inability to cure his boredom. And he will also hate what will come after that, and the one that will come after that, and the one that will come after that. But wait, there's more. The next step in the attack of the demon as we see in paragraph three, is this instilling in the monk a feeling of abandonment, alienation, and isolation. For Aquinas, our happiness is always to be found in communion, communion with others and communion with God. But communion places limits on my autonomy. Anybody who has lived in, who has had a flatmate will know this. Um, commu or, or a family member, or a brother or sister, or a parent, or lives in a work, or has a workplace. Communion places limits on my autonomy. And the removal of all bonds in the name of autonomy ends up dissolving the bonds of communion. And that ends up in a profound isolation where no help is to be found from anything or anyone. And now we have this deadly cycle where I am isolated, but I also resent the very things and persons that break my isolation. 
and in one's loneliness, we come full circle. We move from the hatred of things in existence to the hatred of existence, and then we end up with the hatred of the source of existence. Sloth eventually directs my resentment, not just to the to creatures, but to the Creator. For making, and I'm resentful for the Creator for making what is, at least in the mind of the slothful, a meaningless vacuum of a universe. To paraphrase Snell, um, R.J. Snell, the demon of Acedia causes the slothful to look at the works of God's hands and deem them a mistake. In other words, I, as um, I stricken by the, by the sin of sloth, say when, when God looks at all that he has made and says, indeed it is very good, which we see in scripture, I, stricken by the sin of sloth, am turning to God and calling him a liar. Because the slothful, even when it is done in the fit of despair, seems to know better than God by surprise. We see in paragraph 6 that the demon's attack culminates at a point where the monk realizes the long, meaningless, and burdensome life ahead of him. When everything is meaningless, every action is futile. And when every action is futile, then we arrive at the point where a person looks at the next thing or the next person to commit himself to and say, I can't be bothered. Now, I feel tempted to leave you on this depressing note, um, but it would be irresponsible for me if I did not give as a final segment the response that Evagrius makes in the, uh, as a prescription against the vice of sloth. Evagrius says in another place that if you want to fight the demon of Acedia, go back to your cell and pray the Psalms. Now, as it was in his diagnosis, there is more to his prescription than mere action. Um, what, and this can be summarized in one word, and that word is commitment. Commitment is a check against autonomy in two respects. It is a check against autonomy because it demands a stability, a stability of context, as opposed to this insistence of mobility. Now, because I le only learned recently this um, genealogy between Evagrius on the one hand and St. Benedict on the other, I can now come to understand this very peculiarly Benedictine vow, which is the vow of stability. The vow of stability is the vow to remain in the monastery of one's vocation until death, subject to um, permission from his, um, from his provincial. Right? Now, this is sort of explained by um, the Cistercian writer, Thomas Merton. And remember, the Cistercians are actually part of the Benedictine family. He wrote about the vow of stability in a way that I thought was very telling. He said that he was grateful for the vow of stability uh, because the vow checked his desire to find the ideal monastery. The vow of stability stopped his speculation of what he perceived as the ideal Benedictine life and train him to see the ideal life as the life that is right in front of him. And this leads us to the second aspect of commitment, which can be described as attention. Now attention, once again, checks our autonomy by gradually making us appreciate the order of things. 
and appreciate the depth of things as they present themselves to us on their own terms. Now, in his book, The Religious Sense, the founder of the ecclesial movement named Communion Liberation, named Luigi Giussani, he noted that to be attentive, to pay attention to things, is to acknowledge the objectivity of things. In other words, what we are doing by paying attention is to pay attention to the order or subordinate ourselves to the order of things. Right? And attention here is different from merely gazing. I'm not, I'm not just staring at things and, uh, being, and paying attention to them. That's just weird. Um, attention here is not merely gazing because when we allow things to present themselves to us on their own terms, we are not forcing ourselves onto things. If we are paying attention to a person, I am not forcing my own mental image of a person onto him or her. Rather, what we are doing is actually engaging the world from a posture of humility. St. Thomas Aquinas says that it is actually essential that one has a posture of humility in order for you to engage with reality. In other words, to be real is to actually be humble, first and foremost. Why? Because you recognize, in reality, you recognize that reality is not of your own making. The world is created by someone else. And in the face of that someone else, all I can do is to recognize my subordination to this creator and to be grateful for this creator. So what I do when I am paying attention to something is that I am receiving the thing, the person, the place as a gift from God. And this reception of the gift, once again, checks my desire for autonomy by gradually coming to see the world with different eyes, the eyes of the one that created the thing. In the face of, in the, face of the thing presenting itself to me on, my, on its own terms, I am starting to train myself to see the thing with the eyes of the Creator, with the eyes of God. I am being trained to fathom the unfathomable depths of the imagination of the Creator, recognizing the reason, recognizing the Logos, recognizing the Word of the Creator in the very structure of the universe, in the very structure of the cosmos and all that lives in it. Recognizing that in this word, in this Logos, things live, move, and have their being, as scripture says. So to conclude, if sloth is making us dream of a life of autonomy and disengagement from God and the world, a true spirituality is one that plunges us deeper into the depths of the world so that we might plunge deeper still into the ocean of mercy by which God created the world. The dream of Asidia that um, culminates in this cry that we hear in Dante's Inferno, abandon hope, all ye who enter here. But by contrast, the life of attention to reality should prompt us to say what T.S. Eliot said in his poem called Little Giddings. He says in Little Giddings, we shall not cease from exploration, and at the end of our exploring, we will arrive to where we started and know the place for the first time. In short, the life of commitment to reality 
should prompt us to face what is in front of us and say with the words of Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, verse 16, Truly, the Lord was in this place, and I did not know it. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Matthew Tan with Restore Your Mojo. For more of your favorite Catholic talks, interviews, and shows, visit radio.org.au.